0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast.
0: Let's get back into this issue of the pipeline construction being canceled by executive order of Mr. Biden. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has warned of possible court action and compensation demands. A global news headline, premiers tell Trudeau they won't want to go to war with the U.S. over Keystone XL. There's that. And then there are the other pipelines which may come into the crosshairs of the Biden White House, including several miles of Enbridge line in the Mackinac Straits. Michigan has initiated court action to shut down that stretch of pipeline There's also the question of pipe uh, vaccine shortage, rather, and Alberta has run out of vaccine. We're going to talk about all of that with the premier of alberta jason kenny who joins us on the program now mr premier thank you for the time thanks
2: very much Roy.
0: you made your case for keystone xl to americans on national television and you repeatedly deliver the message that kxl exceeds environmental standards of other nations pipeline infrastructure and yet the new president of the united states made it issue number one to cancel construction on kxl Is there room for, two-part question here, is there room for negotiation, renegotiation with Joe Biden? And do you have confidence the Prime Minister, ours, forcefully made the case for KXL with Biden in the conversation?
2: Well, the answer to the second question appears uh, clearly to be no. Um, And on the first question, um, we would be happy to sit down and negotiate this, if you will, discuss it in the broader context of a conversation common policy on energy and the environment. Uh, that's been our request to the Trudeau government, to the Biden, new Biden administration. Uh, but uh, there so far appears to be zero interest in that in Washington. Let me I should, should start, though, Roy, by saying that I do congratulate the new president on his election and inauguration. And we obviously have to work productively with the new administration. We wish them uh, all the best. But it was a really unfortunate way to start Uh, the relationship with this administration by, uh, frankly, attacking uh, Canada's largest industry, our energy industry, which uh, supports about 800,000 jobs, and by by, uh, cancelling retroactively infrastructure between the countries that already exist. The border crossing was built last year. Multiple U.S. State Department studies have confirmed that it will actually reduce carbon emissions from the alternative, which is shipping by rail, Uh, You have all the U.S. unions on board, First Nations getting an equity share, uh, TC Energy committing to do this on a net carbon zero basis, Canada with higher emissions target reductions than the U.S. Lots of sensible reasons to sit down and talk about this. So that's why I really regret why Prime Minister Trudeau's um, government has basically said, uh, move on, we respect and, and accept the decision.
0: Yeah, It's a very weak response from Mr. Trudeau. Maybe it's a continuation of his wish to phase out the uh, oil sands, which he said publicly not so long ago. And maybe something, Premier, the Canadian government should have made uh, the point they should have made directly and publicly during the U.S. election campaign to Mr. Biden and, and didn't. So now looking at the headline in on Global News, when premiers told Trudeau, that you are ready to, quote, go to war, end quote, with the United States over Keystone. I, I said on the air, just jokingly, that doesn't mean we're going to drag out the old flintlocks from 1812. But what does it mean to you, Premier Kenny? Is it potential legal action, trade action, Canada and the United States on opposite sides of a wide range of economic issues that bite See our 2 countries staring each other down in a, I hate to use the words, trade war, but let's go ahead because it was the premiers who used the words ready to go to war
2: with the united states. Well, I Keystone. actually don't what does that mean? Using, yeah, right, I don't actually recall anybody using those words in our call with the prime minister on uh, on Thursday, but I do certainly recall a number of my colleagues sharing our uh, profound concern about this uh, decision which is a gut punch to the canadian economy but also the precedent that it creates. And let me just uh, mention that I think premier mo did on your show yesterday Uh, There are people very closely uh, aligned, attached to the uh, new administration who are trying to decommission several long-standing pipelines that deliver, well, collectively $100 billion of of energy that we export to the United States in a typical year. I'll give you one example. Line 5, which for 60 years has safely taken about 640,000 barrels of Alberta uh, crude every day uh, across the Straits of Mackinac, to fuel the Michigan economy and the southern Ontario economy. Okay, So if you are filling up in London or Toronto or Sarnia, um, you're using energy coming out of Line 5. If you're getting on an airplane at Pearson, you're flying with the aviation fuel from Alberta that was shipped through that line. The governor of Michigan is, is trying to decommission it. Now there's a precedent where people like that governor could pick up the phone and call the president and say, I want you to use the same power you did on Keystone XL, use that precedent and veto that border crossing that's been there for 60 years. If that happened, it would be devastating. I mean, on that particular project, absolutely devastating to the Ontario and Quebec economies, which is one of the reasons why other premiers are rightly concerned. What I've been asking for is a, that, 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 that the feds, uh, plead with the Biden administration to sit down and discuss this in the broader context of an agreement on energy and the environment and emissions, failing that, um, to at the very least demand that the administration provide some compensation to the Canadians who invested in good faith based on American regulatory approval, uh, because this partly because this um, veto violates the investor protection provisions of NAFTA. Thirdly, um, failing those two things, we we are keeping open our le- legal options uh, to protect the interests of Albertans. You know, TC Energy has invested six seven billion in this. Alberta taxpayers about a billion. Um, we did so on the basis of that the U.S. regulatory decisions were predictable. That cl- clearly is not not the case. This was done by executive fiat. I think with prejudice, and and there we believe clearly there is a strong legal uh, case for for. Um, for damages.
0: Premier, you and I spoke about this uh, Enbridge Line 5 in our last conversation. And if I remember correctly, did you not go to Michigan with the intent of meeting with the governor and she refused?
2: Yes, um, I did. I was in Michigan and Ohio last um, March, I think, of 2019, uh, to discuss these issues. And uh, we c- couldn't, uh, the, the governor refused to meet, but uh, thankfully the governor of Ohio did because his state has, I think, three refineries that create thousands of jobs based on Line 5 energy, and he realizes that much of the state is fueled by this power, uh, by this energy. So, um, you know, we have the the governor of Michigan has issued an executive order to decommission Line 5, which has existed safely for 60 years. Um, And uh, we also have uh, the new climate policy advisor to the president, who's in the White House, who has been leading an organization fighting uh, the Line 3 project that also takes an enormous amount of Canadian energy to the upper Midwest. Here's my broader point. If we allow the, the presidential retroactive veto of Keystone XL to go without a response, I think we're inviting more aggression against what is the largest part of Canadian trade with the United States. I really don't believe that Prime Minister Trudeau would... Just walk by a decision like this if it affected the central Canadian automobile industry, the Quebec aviation sector, the Atlantic fishery sector. But for some reason, his government apparently believes that Canadian energy workers, predominantly in the West, don't deserve a vigorous defense.
0: Yeah, you forgot SNC-LoveLambo, what the um, <laughs> So if I can just ask you to please share with us what the impact on the Alberta economy of the keystone decision of Mr. Biden is and how this will impact on our national economy at a time when pandemic-driven national debt is around a trillion dollars, when provinces see their debts rising significantly, and when Canadians individually owe approximately $1. seventy-one for each dollar they earn, or $0.71 cents extra for each dollar of earnings. What's the impact?
2: Right. The First of all, for those who think that um, oil and gas is now uh, no longer needed, here's the reality. Uh, we are producing more oil in Canada today than ever in our history. Pre-COVID, obviously, we're, the whole economy is, is slower now, but pre-COVID, we were consuming more oil and gas than ever in our history. Um, Canada in particular, of course, is a big, cold, northern, spread out uh, and Industrialized economy, which requires enormous amounts of. I uh, know as I'm sitting here in my home in Calgary, I'm looking out at a very cold day. Very grateful for the natural gas that is a, a byproduct of the oil industry, <laughs> keeping me warm in my in my home. Um, the almost everything you touch in your home is uh, has or includes petroleum products. Global consumption of oil was at uh, record highs before COVID and is projected. Uh, to continue to increase, Uh, energy prices are actually increasing because of growing demand. So, yes, we want to find other sources of energy, but, you know, wind and solar do not. And by the way, this is a hundred billion dollar export industry. We are never going to be exporting wind and solar generated electricity. Where do you replace a hundred billion dollars in value for an economy? Where do you replace 800,000 good paying jobs? So, uh, you know, yes, we can and should continue to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. We have reduced those emissions by 30% in the intensity of the Canadian oil sands, for example. We are committed to continued reductions. But the bottom line is, as long as the world needs this kind of energy, and by the way, for, for folks driving around in their Tesla who are making good incomes in urban Canada, they should understand. That there are billions of people in the developing world that want to move out of energy poverty. They need affordable and reliable energy, and they will get it one way or another. They'll either get it from Saudi Arabia, Russia, uh, Qatar, and Venezuela, or they'll get it from Canada. I- I'd rather they get it from this country with our environmental, human rights, and labor standards.
0: Yeah. Do you foresee? Let me go back to the other question I mentioned before the break. Do you foresee a scenario, a potential scenario? which could have several provinces decide to go it alone without the federal government to either approach the Biden administration or challenge the Biden administration on Keystone, in court, or through other options?
2: Well, first of all, obviously we respect that Canada has only one foreign policy, and we're not going to um, improvise a, a, a separate Canadian foreign policy, but we will stand up for our commercial interests our trade interests uh particularly the federal government is not and if and that is why i've said that if uh if there is no um good faith demonstrated by the biden administration in sitting down to discuss keystone XL in this broader context of energy and the environment that we will be prepared to to use uh, our legal uh recourse uh, because under nafta it says it, uh, just in layman's terms a government can't change the rules halfway through a process that kills someone's investment well that's exactly what the veto and kxl did uh we believe it violates the investor uh, protection provisions of nafta which the trudeau government quite rightly brought forward uh under the new trade agreement and so um we believe there are there is a process to make a claim for those damages um i don't i hope we don't have to do that but we will obviously defend our interests if necessary
0: premier if i may just shift gears and move to the issue of vaccine availability sure uh, we're at about one percent of the population has been vaccinated and uh, the delay is considerable now before, as we look into the weeks ahead what level of responsibility well first of all what's the situation in alberta and what level of responsibility must the federal government assume for the very slow rollout of covid vaccinate vaccines
2: Well, what I can tell you is in Alberta, we uh, got off to a bit of a slow start, but we quickly course corrected and then ended up with the fastest pace of inoculation in Canada. And we effectively ran out of uh, vaccine doses uh, over a week ago. Um, We have had some that we've kept back for administration of second doses, uh, but even that supply is now at jeopardy. Um, you know, Canada, I think, has inoculated a little over 1% of the population versus over 30% in Europe, uh, sorry, in, in Israel. In, in, uh, in Britain, they're inoculating 400,000 people a day now, um, at, I think about six times more than in Canada. The U.S. is well ahead of us, two to three times ahead of us in, on a per capita basis. So we are falling behind in terms of inoculation in this critical thing. Not, it's, Obviously, it's life-saving. But also, all of these incredibly painful and damaging restrictions that governments have in place um, are waiting for uh, community immunity that would come uh, from from widespread vaccine, so we, so we can have much more widespread relaxation. So this is this is life and death. It is it is uh, so significant for the future of our of people's livelihoods, um, and it comes back to the federal government. They uh, took over procurement. Uh, they've had lots of great talking points about signing contracts some of those with providers that are nowhere near their phase 3 trials or approvals uh, vaccines that won't be available till the end of this year and all i know is right now we've run out here in alberta i spoke to my friend who is uh, yuli edelstein the minister of uh, health in israel where they've inoculated over nearly a third of the population i said how did you get the supply he said we were just relentless. Prime Minister Netanyahu apparently was on the phone with the global president of Pfizer seventeen times, um, trying to get that that access. I don't. I gather our prime minister hasn't spoken to the heads of the global pharma companies at all. So I think there's been a. a let's. It, appear, it appears to have been a lack of leadership. Yeah,
0: uh, Premier Kenney, the Americans plan a hundred million vaccinations in the first hundred days of the Biden administration. That speaks volumes with the already sparse vaccine supply for Canada dramatically reduced and Canadians' access to being vaccinated interrupted, is there a continuing case to be made that the federal government and provinces adopted the wrong approach for dealing with the pandemic? Retired Canadian Armed Forces Lieutenant Colonel David Redman, former executive director of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, who very much impressed uh, former American ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Canada, so much so that he brought Colonel Redmond to testify before Congress in the United States. Colonel Redmond continues to insist that the pandemic is not a public health emergency, but rather a public emergency with in-place and tested procedures which should have been put to use but weren't followed by the federal and provincial governments. A quote from Colonel Redmond, governments took out every, or took every emergency pandemic plan they'd ever written and then threw them out the window when COVID arrived, I've had so many requests for the return of David Redmond to this program since he appeared in early December. Colonel Redmond, David, good to have you back on the show. Thank you for taking the time.
3: Thanks, Roy. Delighted to be here.
0: So uh, you sent me uh, a lot of information over the last couple of days, and I, I've gone through it, and I find it really uh, compelling. So let me start with this, if I may, and ask you to comment on it. This is from the information you sent me. Every day, the numbers of deaths in long-term care homes grows in spite of society-wide lockdowns. The public is blamed for not locking down hard enough. In fact, the deaths mount because our leaders continue to choose not to quarantine our long-term care homes. Speak to that, please.
3: Okay. For, uh, one of the things that's really clear is right from the start, back in February, We knew worldwide that 95% of the deaths from COVID were in seniors over the age of 60 with multiple comorbidities. Now, for Canada, that makes it very clear that the places where those concentrations of our seniors with multiple comorbidities was in our long-term care homes. So back in February and March, we should have developed a plan to quarantine our long-term care homes. And when I say quarantine, I mean the staff that works in them and the residents. If we had done that, in the first wave alone, 81% of the deaths in Canada came from long-term care homes. So let, let's just take a quick look at today's numbers. Today, posted on the Health Canada website, 18,974 Canadians have died tragically from COVID. 96.5% of those deaths. That's well over 18,300 were in seniors with multiple comorbidities over the age of 60. The long-term care homes, we could have potentially saved up to 17,000 people if we had simply quarantined the long-term care homes and not tried to lock down society. So anyone that says lockdowns is working, well, it certainly hasn't worked in our long-term care homes, which we should have quarantined and left the rest of society to carry on.
0: You know, as I read through the material that you sent, I just kept putting tick marks beside everything because it made so much sense to me, Dave. Now, I want to go to something else um, that you sent me and that is emergency management. And during our last conversation in December, you pointed out that you'd offered your services and plans that were in place to the provinces and the federal government without any interest being displayed in return. So that being said, am I right about that?
3: Yes, you're absolutely right.
0: Okay. That being said, let me read from what you sent me. Pandemics happen continuously right from the start one must state a pandemic is not a public health emergency. It is a public emergency. All areas of society are affected, public sector, private sector, not-for-profit, and all citizens. In Canada, we have an emergency management process that we normally use in a pandemic. We have pre-written pandemic response plans. The aim of these plans is to allow our leaders to rapidly minimize the impact of the new pandemic on our society. The four goals of the pandemic plans are are clearly defined what are those four goals dave and again did we just did our governments federal and provincial just absolutely maybe in i don't want to use the word panic necessarily i'll turn that over to you did they just drop the ball
3: in my opinion yes they did they had a framework plan which should have been taken you should have put together the uh the planning committee and they should have reviewed the plan and made it specific to COVID 19. and if you had covered all four goals that are outlined in pandemic planning the first one is controlling the spread of influenza disease and reducing illness and death the second one is mitigate societal disruption the third one is minimize adverse economic impact and the fourth one is supporting an efficient and effective use of resources So what it seems to have happened is by placing the medical officers of health in charge, they tried to focus on the first one, and they redefined the aim of the entire pandemic plan to make sure no one caught COVID. Well, first of all, in a pandemic, that's not even possible. And people say, well, we're going to use the lockdowns to to, to depress the transmission. But I put it to you that it hasn't. If you look at the way the curve of infection has gone up, it follows the annual viral infection curve. And so if you put in charge people whose job it is to try and mitigate the spread of the disease, you miss the fact that your energy sector, your agriculture sector, your transportation sector, your small business and tourism sectors aren't even at the table. When I say... At the start, they should have revised the plan for COVID. I believe we should have had both public and private sector people across energy, agriculture, health, environment, infrastructure, ICT, information communications technology, finance, our banking system, our small business and tourism, all at that table in that first planning session. And we should have broken out pieces of it for them to do. Health, of course, being right in that room and describing the impacts of this disease. But the first thing they should have described is that 95% of the deaths are in seniors over the age of 60 with multiple comorbidities. That would have then defined a far more coherent approach, which has not simply happened. Out of that, a written plan should have been produced and sent through the media to the entire public, showing the phases of the plan, the potential of the second wave, and all the triggers that would, that would fall in place, so the public then would be part of the plan. We've never seen a written published plan, in my knowledge, from any of the provinces to the public. And so the public is watching as their government jerks from one catastrophe to the next down the line. But the biggest catastrophe is our long-term care homes.
0: And and as you've said uh, earlier today, and as you said to us in December, told us in December, this plan, the emergency pandemic plan that was in place, that had been put in place after careful study and deliberation that was ready to go was just absolutely tossed out the window. And you write, in part, at least, uh, some of the information that I received from you, the Canadian response, not based on emergency management, the Canadian response to COVID-19 has been incoherent and constantly changing with no plan. The focus on only COVID-19 case counts led to a completely flawed response, trying to deal only with the first pandemic goal, and failing, and that's what you have just explained to us. Okay, so looking again at the information that you provided me, we should have immediately developed options for the protection of concentrations of our seniors over 60 with comorbidities. Our long-term care homes should have been placed into quarantine for both residents and staff. And it goes on to say this may have cost $1.5 billion, but could have saved over 12,800 lives while negating the need to lock down business and spend over $240 billion to force over 8 million healthy Canadians to stay home. That, sir, is an indictment.
3: Yes, it certainly is, isn't it? And, And the line you always get is lockdowns have saved lives. So if that's a true statement, I want to draw you a parallel. On one side, I want to give you Quebec. Let's call Quebec a country. It's got 8.5 million people. It's got a a climate that we all know, and it has uh, cities and rural areas. And I'm going to compare it to Sweden, and I can hear your audience gasp as I say that. Sweden has a very similar climate to Quebec. Sweden has the same sort of concentrations of cities and rural areas. It has exactly the same type of uh, a hospital structure that we do. So it's a good direct comparison, one to the other. Sweden has 10 million people. Quebec has 8.5. Sweden has not used the lockdown process. They have not closed their schools. Their small business is still running. And in fact, they even go so far as to discourage the wearing of masks, until very recently, and now they only say you should probably wear them on public transit. But everywhere else, don't wear them. So on one side, you've got a no-lockdown model in Sweden, and on the other side, you've got Quebec, now with curfews in, in effect. So let's compare the two in terms of total deaths. In fact, Sweden has a lower per capita death rate than Quebec. So tell me again how lockdowns work. Quebec has a higher per capita death rate than Sweden. And on top of that, let's look at Sweden. They have had a a total of 315 people die from COVID under the age of 60, the majority of which are in their 50, to the range 50 to 60, with severe comorbidities. So a country that used no lockdowns had about 300 people. If we look at Canada as a whole again, We've had about 660 deaths in Canada from COVID under the age of 60. We lose about 1,200 Canadians to traffic accidents every year under the age of 60. Uh, Lockdowns, in a direct comparison to a same type of, of society, clearly have had no effect. So you can't tell me lockdowns work, and yet what we've done is caused massive collateral deaths, in people with heart attack, dementia, diabetes, and cancer who refuse to even go to the hospital, the CDCs in the United States estimate a 20% increase, unaccountable increase, in those deaths because of the lockdown mentality. People too afraid to report their diseases. We've seen massive increases in drug overdoses. We've seen mental health issues, societal health breakdown. We're watching B.C. trying to lock down so that no other province can even send people into their province. And the impact on our youth, the educational impact, both in terms of academia, but in terms of their social development every day growing up. I wonder what those people will be like when they're 40 years old running our country in 20 years with this type of two-year disruption in their social
4: development.
0: Now, Dave, uh, British Columbia has uh, decided not to pursue the um, banning interprovincial travel because the premier said that I believe that constitutionally or legally they can't do it. Uh, But I understand what you're saying. Now, let me come back to the beginning of our conversation, because you just outlined a series of issues and, and and created a really damning indictment of what took place and didn't need to take place. You continue to say, and it was available to the federal government and every provincial government, there was a pandemic emergency plan in place in Canada that had been decided on, that had been approved, and was ready to roll out, and when COVID arrived, the governments, to use your words, threw it out the window. Yes?
3: Well, in every province in Canada, they had written a pandemic preparedness plan. What they did with it in each province by province can only be concluded that it wasn't used because we switched immediately to the lockdown mentality. And in every pandemic plan, lockdowns are not, they're called non-pharmaceutical interventions, and they're strongly discouraged and only to be used in the very last case. That's part of the WHO document that Canada agreed to. That's part of every pandemic plan that was written. So there can only be one interpretation made on my part. They simply ignored the plans they had written.
0: I have 30 seconds. What are we doing now? How, how, how do we do now? How do you get out of it? What do you do?
3: Two bullets. Protect our long-term care homes and actually quarantine the staff and individuals there until you can actually vaccinate the people in those facilities, starting with the staff, number one. And number two, stop the collateral damage to across our entire society by lifting the lockdowns and carrying on with life.
0: We have spent the last 11 months now speaking with uh, Dan Kelly, the President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small and medium-sized businesses, as you know, in this country. And Dan has shared with us um, some very disturbing stories of small business owners who are facing huge challenge, facing going out of business. We've spoken with small business owners, with Dan, and also independently, about the challenges they're facing. Well, th- earlier in the week, there was a release from uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business which indicates that 181,000 small business owners nationally are seriously considering permanently closing and that could put, listen to the number, that could place 2.4 million jobs at risk in Canada, 2.4 million jobs at risk in this country. When you consider the combined population of the provinces of Manitoba and Saskatchewan, Just slightly more than that, just over 2.5 million. That puts into perspective just how serious this issue is 2.4 million jobs at risk. Um, This is also on top of the 58,000 businesses which became inactive in 2020. So, Dan Kelly joins us, President, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan, thank you for the time. And when I saw that story, I saw that number, it's just staggering. Put, Put that into perspective for us, please.
1: It really is. Look, uh, we have 110,000 small businesses as members of CFIB. And for months, we've been seeing this in our own data as we go to try to renew business owners, uh, ask them to, uh, to reconsider a membership, even a free membership, recognizing the challenges that they have to pay us. And we're finding at the door so many businesses with little handwritten signs in their windows saying temporarily closed As we try to reach those business owners, they're saying, you know, they're not sure whether or not they're going to be able to make it. So putting that to our members through a survey of our 110,000 members, this is the new data that we've now uh, collected and then extrapolated on the economy as a whole. And it's deeply, deeply troubling to think that by the end of the pandemic, one in five small businesses may no longer be there, 20% of the small business population in the country that's not even our worst case estimate either roy uh, it could be as high as one in four businesses a full quarter of canada's independent business community disappearing uh, before the end of the pandemic I'll, I'll note, look i mean small business owners know that and, and the public knows that businesses fail even in good economic times there are, you know how many neighborhood restaurants disappear on an annual basis fair a fair number but they're typically replaced with new people that are coming in and taking up the reins. They're either sold or transitioned. But that's not happening either. Uh, very few people. There have been some courageous enough to start new businesses, and my hat's off to them. They've not been a- having an easy go of it, uh, especially given that they're to, unable to access the government support programs. But what I can tell you is that the net business loss to the country is likely to be gi- gigantic, and that's where unemployment starts. And that's what, you know, that that 1 in uh, 2.4 million Canadian jobs disappearing, that's going to affect all of us for a long time to come.
0: Well, it will affect the tax base. It will certainly affect, uh, well, as you say, it will affect our entire uh, national community. And what I think, Dan, when we speak about the small business community in this country during good times, employing just in excess of 800 or 8 million Canadians, that's almost a quarter of that business, uh, of that employment reality, potentially disappearing off the map.
1: You got it. And, you know, I think a lot of people have looked in their neighborhoods and they've seen, yes, they've seen a few businesses that are, go, that, are that are no longer there. Uh, but we haven't seen the tip of the iceberg yet. Like, we're, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg right now. And, and it's likely to get a lot worse as this goes on. Uh, Every month that the lockdown measures are in place across Canada means more businesses are not going to make it across the finish line. Uh, Beyond that, even once businesses reopen, they have to try to make enough money to try to pay their current bills and then try to find a way to make uh, even more to, to start to pay down some of the debt that has accumulated over the course of the entire pandemic and we estimate that to be over $100,000 in new COVID-related debt for the average small business. So you think about that. What are your sales taxes to, to, to make a debt? Like you'd be lucky in these early months to, to break even, but you're going to have to try to unbury yourself from months and months of COVID-related debt. A large part of that is rent support that didn't materialize in the first part of COVID. So we're really worried about right?
0: You know, I, I mentioned that uh, David Redman is going to be on the show uh-huh. for the next hour. The former executive director of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency and uh, Colonel Redmond very clearly says that had the, uh, had the pandemic emergency plans been put in place, that were in place, had they been employed by the federal and provincial governments, the kinds of situations that uh, small business owners are facing would not have materialized to the extent that they have and they are now so, I mean, there will be people who will challenge Colonel Redmond. We certainly hear will what, what hear what he has to say. Uh, but I've read through some of the material that he sent me earlier in the week, and it is really incredibly uh, focused. And we'll be talking about that. Dan, is there is there a region in this country particularly that is suffering more than any other as far as small business uh, failures or potential failures is concerned?
1: Yes, and it's the province in which you and I are sitting <laughs> at the moment, Ontario. Uh, it, Ontario has had... Currently, has the most onerous COVID restrictions in the entire country. More Ontario businesses are fully shut down than anywhere else in Canada. Uh, in fact, only a third of small businesses in Ontario are fully open. Two thirds of them are fully or partially closed at this moment, and and the you know that's that's dramatically higher than the rest of the country. Um, you know, one of the things that. I don't think has been uh, fully explored is the difference between what's happening in British Columbia and what's happening in Ontario and a few other provinces. BC, with an NDP government that's not, you know, that you know, one doesn't assume is going to go to bat for the business community on every occasion, uh, uh, it has kept the economy open, more open, in concert with its public health officials. than than almost any other provinces outside of Atlantic Canada. They never shut down retail in British Columbia, not for a minute, not even in the first wave of COVID-19. And yet the Ontario government, that likes to think of itself as having the most pro-business government, the pro-small-business government in the country anyway, um, they have been uh, doing everything they can to punish small businesses while for some reason protecting the big guys from the full effect of their measures. And so that's the piece that I think uh, is a story that has yet to be written, how B.C. has kept its economic activity at a far higher level uh, than Ontario and, and and many other provinces.
0: Okay, please hold on, Dan Kelly. Um, there's also, there are the dropping numbers, the falling numbers of daily infections, certainly over the last number of days, and specifically, if you look at central Canada and Quebec and Ontario, significantly Uh, Dropping numbers, in the United States, some of the states are now uh, starting to lift some of their curfews. Massachusetts will tomorrow lift its 9.30 p.m. business curfews for restaurants and entertainment complexes. They're also lifting their nighttime stay-at-home advisory, and I understand the state of Michigan... We'll be doing similarly starting tomorrow, some other states too. Again, consider the numbers. 181,000 small businesses in this country. 181,000 small business owners nationally are seriously considering permanently closing. That would put 2.4 million jobs at risk in Canada. 2.4 million jobs at risk. Tony is in Toronto. How are you, Tony?
4: Hey, how's it going?
0: Good, sir. What's your story? What's happening to you?
4: Um, I own a billiard hall, a pool hall, and a live music venue uh, downtown Toronto.
0: And obviously, I, I shouldn't say obviously, I imagine you're closed.
4: Yeah, we've been closed since March, uh, essentially, um, with very little government help. Um, you know, uh, we could operate at a, you know, have a few people inside at a time, but even that, we're not allowed. We have to, we have to be closed um and it just sucks that it's taking so long that that we haven't been able to open and you know other businesses have been able to open and close and open and close but uh, our sort of business hasn't been able to open at all
5: how um,
0: have you survived how have you survived since march not being able to be open
4: well luckily our our landlord has been helping out he uh, um gave us a bit of a discount on, on our rent uh, at first and then when uh, recently when the subsidy has come out um, they want the 100% rent but at the same time it's um, you know if, if the government's giving us 90% back which is not actually 90% it it works out to be about 80%. Um, and we're haven't been making a single penny revenue for since March. Um, it just puts us in a really hard spot to pay the rep the remaining uh, which we have to dip into our either savings or uh, loans and go into further debt.
0: Yeah. One quick final question. How long can you hold out?
4: <sighs> Jeez, I really don't know. We've been It's been month by month, and uh, by the grace of God, we've been able to hold on this long.
0: What a tough way to live. What a t- Tony, thank you for the call. Dan, I'm going to put another caller on here from uh, Manitoba, then we'll, we'll get back to you. Alan is calling from Manitoba. This is really interesting. Alan, you own a cattle ranch. How's it going for you?
5: Well, it's um, been some tough years. Uh, we've had flood, flood, drought, 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 and now virus is screwing up the markets. And uh, it would be really good to... Uh, to re- remove a lot of these restrictions, they really don't not effective because um, we. I'm not sure how how uh, accurate this is. What's in the media about Sweden? They never put a lot of these restrictions on, and they really never no, had more. they didn't. They, they did
0: not have the kinds of restrictions that we that we do. Let me ask you really quickly: How long can you, how many, how large an operation do you have, and how long can you continue with a with your cattle when you can't sell what you need to sell
5: well it's costing us a lot that's for sure and uh, I've got about twelve hundred acres here and uh, but normally we have uh, we're making some money if you don't have too much debt you can you can make it but there's a lot of younger guys have uh, left the industry there's too much debt and uh, um,
0: can you hold on another six months oh okay, yeah I
5: should be able to yeah but uh, need. there's really no need for it, like for any of these restrictions. Uh, like I, I've been doing lots of traveling this in this past summer, and uh, I don't see any uh, symptoms of people. Uh, well,
6: we'll have
0: we'll have that discussion uh, with uh, with Colonel Redmond in the next hour. Thank you for the call, Alan from Manitoba. We have one minute, Dan. What you heard from uh, Tony and from Alan sounds very familiar to you, I guess.
1: Well, it sure does. Look, uh, the uh, the pool and the arts venue in Toronto, I mean, they've got months ahead of them. Just think about this. I mean, even when the restrictions lift, are we going to be rushing back to, to, to venues like that? Probably not. Uh, yeah, and, and as a that's result, the that's problem. going to continue. And, you yeah. know, I will say just one thing. On the Ontario Small Business Grant, businesses like his are ineligible uh, to get help from the Ontario government because... They were shut down earlier, if you can believe it. Only the businesses <laughs> shut down on December 26th are eligible yeah. for that program. If Dan, you, I've said it many
0: before, times. I've said it many times. I'll say it one more time. You cannot outthink those who aren't thinking.
1: <laughs> good to talk to you, not, my friend, so we'll as work, always. you are working on it, Roy. Yeah, yeah, I know you, you are. Hopefully
0: 99. sooner there'll be, no pun intended for our friend Alan, the greener pastures. That's awful. That's his terrible I saw a very interesting um, headline the other day and decided I would follow up on it. And the headline simply read, Should polygraphs be used to screen police recruits for racial bias? And uh, and then the the story then focused on, on a book called Racial Profiling and Policing Beyond the Basics. And the author is Dr. Alex Del Carmen. And uh, he's associate dean and professor at the School of Criminology, Criminal Justice, and Strategic Studies at Charlton State University in Texas. Professor Del Carmen has trained thousands of police officers, including all police chiefs in Texas, for the last two decades. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, dr del carmen thank you very much for taking the time and you have a long career training police officers as i just mentioned and you write that racial profiling is a far more complex issue than is portrayed by politicians and in the media would you explain that to us please
6: absolutely and thanks for having me this afternoon so essentially what we have found and i have found in the past 23 years of research and and training is that now this topic has become so political that no one wants to hear or listen to scientists, right? But this is an actual topic of conversation that has been scientifically studied for many years. And what we have come up with is that there are different formulas out there mathematically and some of which are also practical that allow us to identify potential racist police officers and then allow us to actually identify them uh, before they even get hired, right? So, so the idea would be that you prevent hiring uh, officers that may, in fact, be racist before you have to fire them or convict them once that's already proven in a court of law.
0: So how would this work? And there's been, as you well know far better than I, there's a lot of, or there has been questioning about the reliability of polygraphs. How, how would it take place?
6: You know, a lot of these folks that are kind of promoting the idea of polygraphs uh, to be able to identify whether or not the individual has racial bias, the idea would be that the person is asked a series of questions and that the person uh, under the strains of a polygraph would be able to depict particular answers and that a certain sort of sequence of responses would indicate, you know, to that polygrapher that, in fact, the person is or may have tendencies to be racist. I don't know that that is 100% foolproof. And quite honestly, for years now, I've been trying to develop a system that allows us to, be able to do sort of a psychological profile of the person that gives you sort of an index, right? And by giving you that index, it would actually allow that person to, or for that police agency to know where that person lies within the structure of most of our biases. We all have them, right? So the idea is, is the bias correctable? And is the bias something that can be addressed before the individual enters the police academy or some people are off the charts.
0: Um, do you study policing just in the state of Texas or throughout the United States, maybe internationally?
6: Throughout the United States and internationally, I'm actually a Fulbright. and I spend uh, part of my year last year in the Czech Republic training police officers as well.
0: Okay. So now I understand, and I've done a bit of reading on this, particularly over the last couple of days, because it's a very interesting subject. Police agencies, and I believe this could be just in the state of Texas, um, or b- more broadly, but... Uh, the information I saw dealt with the state of Texas. Police agencies do collect data, but I believe you have said that few of them use the data effectively and that at Charlton University, you're beginning to store and analyze this data. Um, speak to that, please, and how would you, how do you put the data to use on an individual officer basis?
6: Yeah, so, so a lot of police departments, and I would argue that it's actually not a Texas thing, but rather almost a universal reality. And I know certainly in Canada as well as in the United States, We do collect a great deal of data points uh, as it relates to police officer interactions with the public. The problem with police agencies in general is that they they store the data, but they hardly look at it from an analytical perspective. What I mean by that is that they they don't really understand what they're collecting. They're collecting the data. They create these really nice-looking reports that have nice graphs and all that, but they don't really do a deep dive. They don't really try to ask the right questions. And so what I've been trying to do for now 23 years and more specifically recently by creating an institute of data analytics at Tarleton is that we're looking at data sort of from a scientific perspective, but also from a practical sense. In other words, does it matter who the officer stops in a traffic stop, or does it really matter what the officer does once that traffic stop is made? And I would argue that the latter is far more significant than the former. And so it is through that level of understanding that we're hopefully trying to provide the tools to law enforcement that they need to get rid of folks that should have never been police officers in the first place.
0: How much of an issue is this? If you were to go look at the police forces across the United States, or you said it's a universal issue, how much, I don't want to say, I don't want to quantify how much of an issue it is, but is there a significant percentage of the police presence in our communities globally where there is racial bias? inside the uniform
5: well I, w-
6: I would argue that the majority of police officers you know that i have encountered in the course of my 23 years as a criminologist you know are decent honest hard-working people but that's not to say that there aren't any that, that you know that, that simply shouldn't have never been police officers and what i have found is that that there are more than than what people consider uh when they when they think of it as a one or two percent within the police force but they're certainly less than what the media says which is you know, the pegaments being most of police officers are racist, which is not the case. So I would I would argue that science can allow us to really fully understand what percentage we're talking about, but I would argue that it's significant enough for police departments to take a close look at who they're hiring, who they're retaining, who they're promoting, and certainly who they're putting out in the streets in order to interact with the public.
0: What else, uh, Dr. Del Carmen? Uh, and again, the book is Racial Profiling in Policing, Beyond the Basics. What else in policing has to, has to be adjusted, has to change? Because, the again, we, we in Canada tend to look south and see what's going on in the United States. Perhaps we can also look at our own realities. So should do that maybe a little more than, than we do. But, you know, the tendency is always to look to the U.S. to see what's going on in your country because it's so huge and influential at its most basic. When you look at the relationship between police and community, what has to change in policing?
6: Yeah, you know, so I, I think that part of part of the problem that we've had in the United States specifically, but it's certainly not a, a U.S. problem per se, exclusively, is the fact that law enforcement emerged as a sort of a paramilitary structure, right? So, so it's actually founded on the principle of protecting and serving. Notice the fact that protection is first before service, uh, while well, service is second, as a mission statement. So, I think that because of that, it, it has a tendency of attracting really good people that want to do service to the community, but it also attracts individuals that are all about hunger, hunger of power. They want to be able to sort of be in control and in charge. And and sadly, uh, the mechanisms that are in place right now to recruit these folks and to train them really do- are not sensitive to the type of personality that we are attracting. So that's why here in the U.S., for instance, if you look at the past 24, 48 hours, there's been sort of a huge campaign right now across the country to try to identify how active some of these sort of radical police officers are in social media campaigns that are aligning themselves with these radical groups in the U.S. My guess is we're going to find out there are a lot more police officers involving these radical groups than what we thought at the beginning. So that's a concern. And, and, and quite honestly, we have, this is going to be uh, one of these moments in history throughout the world that we're going to have to stop and really take a look at ourselves as a community, but also take a look at policing and say, what sort of things do we need to change in order to be able to prevent these events from taking place in the future?
0: I have about a minute. Uh, a real issue that's been identified is keeping police in policing and not leaving the profession. And also a real challenge, from what I understand, is attracting young people to the policing profession. How how do you counter that?
6: You know, through through the you know you, you, the person that actually joins the police force, is somebody that seeks to do something better than, than, than a mission that's greater than themselves, right? So, so you have to appeal to that sort of idealistic perspective that you want to have people that want to make a difference, that want to do good, and counter what a lot of the media and social media have been putting out there, which is mostly negative messages about the police job, which is a very noble profession in the first place.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts,